This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, an unprecedented deluge last weekend and four fatalities was followed by a flood of criticism about critical emergency information not communicated quickly enough, in spite of an army of professionals paid for the purpose. Because, yeah. you know, clocking off at 7.30 on the Friday, we'll never forget that, will we? We definitely won't forget that. But the news media also copped criticism for being seasonally slow when compared to social media feeds which compiled compelling content almost instantly. This week we ask if time is tick-tocking on the news media as the people's first choice when crisis comes. And can emergency agencies and news media alike effectively harvest hundreds of thousands of citizens and their smartphones to create a bigger picture that really makes sense in a crisis? But first, much of the recriminations over communications from the media were directed at the Auckland mayor, who called them drongos, and then doubled down on it. Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Riders on the storm by the doors. I hear that now and I can just think about Auckland. That was Frank Ritchie, the co-host of the Sunday at 6 show on News Talk ZB last weekend. And given the inundations over the previous 48 hours, the Doors' stormy 60s hit was a pretty bold choice of intro music. And the first listener to phone in to Frank, appropriately named Flo, wanted to praise the real-time efforts of another host on ZB, Marcus Lush, who was on air when the rain began to fall in a big way. He was absolutely marvellous, and in my opinion, needs a damn medal. He kept us up to date. He had people ringing in from all around the country telling him what was happening in the areas. He was absolutely wonderful. However, Flo couldn't say the same about the powers that be, including the Mayor of Auckland. He gave us more information than civil defence or that hopeless Wayne Brown. And Flo was far from the only one unimpressed with the conduct of the mayor, as we'll hear. And on his ZB show last Sunday, Frank Ritchie made another bold call for the top of the hour theme tune after more grim news and weather. And, of course, the news is out about the thunderstorms forming in the Hauraki Gulf. So, uh, again, there could be a few places in line for some uh, intense isolated showers. So to reiterate some of the information that you might need... if you And just three hours earlier, on the same network, the same tune was picked to kick off the Weekend Collective show. New Zealand, no my hearty mites. The weekend collective Roman Travers here in for Tim Beveridge for today. I know that song couldn't be more on point, could it? Really is quite biblical. And when Tim Roxburgh took over later that night on ZB, he played Elton John tunes instead for the thousands who didn't get to see them performed at those cancelled concerts. But it was people sick of Wayne Brown's performance who were phoning into his show, even from offshore. Like, I live over here in Australia and I saw him on Sky News over here. He looked like a bumbling wreck who didn't read a single sheet of paper about what's actually gone on in his city. Aucklanders should be embarrassed for voting for this guy, to be honest with you. Well, I, I hope he can learn from things. 
and uh, it, it's a little difficult to learn from things when you're when you're in your seventies, and th- that's not said in a patronising sense. Um, it's hard to change tack. Well, that did sound a bit patronising, to be fair. Now, by now, many other people were calling on Wayne Brown to step down, many within the ranks of the Drongos in the media. For instance, former boxer-turned-fitness advocate and community worker Dave Letele, better known as Butterbean, who said this on TBNZ's breakfast show and a live cross to a relief centre in Mangare on Monday morning. You know, my message to Wayne is, look, I think he's out of his, out of his depth. Uh, he, this was his opportunity to really stand up and deliver. Uh, if, and he just hasn't. You know, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd go far as saying, you know, I think he needs to resign over this. It's just been total, uh, uh, absolute disgrace. Later on Monday, Dave Letele stood by his call on RNZ's checkpoint, and it turned out that he'd made his views known to the mayor in person as well when Wayne Brown called in at that same relief centre, as Dave Letele told Toba O'Brien on Today FM that same morning. Look, I think he's, um, he's out, of, out of his depth. I do go as far as saying I think he does need to resign. And Dave Latella is no stranger to Today FM himself. He has his own weekend show on the network, The Butterbean Radio Show. And when the emergency was unfolding the Friday before last, Dave Latella was actually filling in on Today FM at the very point that the emergency had been declared by Mayor Wayne Brown, but not yet declared to the public or the media. Butterbean, you're shaking your head. Oh, it's just... Look, it's good that it's been called, but what, you know, where to? we need directions. Yeah, what's going what on next? next? What's next, yeah. But when Dave Latelli called on the mayor to quit on all those other shows, none of them mentioned Dave Latelli had had skin in the mayoral game during the election campaign as the backer of a rival candidate, which Dave Latelli himself mentioned on his own Today FM show like this. Wayne Brown's Facebook hasn't been updated since 2022, September. As I said it, Leo for mayor, that's what should have happened. On that same network, Today FM, there was plenty more that the current mayor wouldn't have wanted to hear. Mid-morning host Duncan Garner said on the air that Wayne Brown should consider his position during the initial Friday night downpour. And when he was back on air on his own show last Monday, Duncan Garner hadn't changed his mind. He's a part-time mayor who should resign. He has no mandate and he showed himself to be missing in action at a time when he was needed most. Earlier, the morning host on the same network, Rachel Smalley, condemned Wayne Brown's communications like this. It's like someone pulled him away from his glass of Pinot and he's pissed off about it. There is nothing reassuring about Brown's communication in any shape or form. He speaks like an AI bot that's gone on the blink. But on her show, Rachel Smalley got a second opinion on that from long-serving news chief Mark Jennings. Do you think the criticism levelled at him is fair? Yes, I do. I think his performance was terrible. And the same morning, the next Today FM host, Tova O'Brien, wasn't holding back either. I just hope it takes Wayne Brown less time to draft his resignation letter than it took him to declare a state of emergency. And Tova O'Brien clearly wanted her take to travel. She urged listeners to get online and text the link to that editorial to as many other people as possible. And there's a bit of an irony there, as on the first day of the emergency, Wayne Brown told reporters he didn't actually know if emergency text message announcements had been sent out to people or not. And later that day, also on Today FM, afternoon host Lloyd Burr began by interviewing fellow host Rachel Smalley about Wayne Brown falling short. But I think he needs to put up others to communicate. And although a mayor needs to be a figurehead, he doesn't have what it takes. Now, at first glance, Lloyd Burr appeared to be adding some balance in his opinion piece for the Today FM website, which began like this. I thought I'd come to his defence and list what he's done well as mayor. But below that, Lloyd Burr listed just a bunch of blank lines with bullet points. 
Now, all that opprobrium was on just one radio network in one day, and there was plenty more elsewhere. News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen, for example, even offered the mayor's job to his deputy, Desley Simpson, live on the air on Wednesday. But was there any editorialiser in the media anywhere not joining the pylon? Well, having read an online analysis in which RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson said that Aucklanders didn't get the leadership they deserved the Friday before last, Sean Plunkett on the platform reckoned the overly woke media had overreacted. This is crazy. It's crazy what happened this weekend. Um, And as I said, I wouldn't say that what Wayne Brown did was faultless. I think he needs some media training. I'd be happy to help him out in that regard, to be honest. And maybe he's just a guy who doesn't do it like anyone else and says, screw the media. And if that's the way he wants to be, that's the way he wants to be. The fact is, he is the elected mayor of Auckland. And you better get used to it, woke news media. And Wellington-based Sean Plunkett went further on Monday, saying that Aucklanders could cope. And I also think a lot of New Zealanders are used to a bit of flooding and the road being washed out or the cistern not working or something stuffing out. And we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves. Uh, and all this pearl clutching that's gone on in Auckland has just been, to be frank, I think Auckland should be collectively and the media should be embarrassed of themselves. Now, some listeners texted in to tell Sean Plunkett they liked what they were hearing from him on the platform because they weren't getting it elsewhere in the media, with one exception. Sean, well done on setting up the platform. We need a voice of reason in the quagmire of liberal left-wing woke narrative-driven BS. Only you, oh, and some other guy who's on some other radio station who's had a long holiday, have the balls to stand up to it. Onwards and upwards to your growth. I'll be doing. And the other non-woke bloke on the radio he was referring to there was News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking, not back on the air until last Tuesday, and who's missed a few big stories over his long summer break, including the big storm. But in his absence on ZB, Tim Roxborough tried to tell Wayne Brown this. You know what, the media aren't always out to get you. Sometimes people just want to know that you are onto it. And Wayne Brown did concede on Monday communications mistakes had been made over the weekend and lessons will be learned. But Morning Report listeners that same day heard this rather than Wayne Brown himself. Now we did ask Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown for an interview this morning to get the latest on the council's response and any advice for residents. We were told Mr Brown isn't doing any interviews or press conferences today as he's back to back with briefings. And the same day Stuff's Auckland Issues correspondent Todd Nile made this point. A flood briefing does not preclude media appearances, a role filled by Brown's councillors who are at the same time on the ground helping their communities. It is a deliberate choice. Corin Dan ended up giving Wayne Brown's deputy his disappointment about that. Is that good enough? Look, um, I'm happy to talk to you at any time, Corin. The mayor, as my understanding is, the mayor is on the ground um, and has been over the weekend very much talking to communities and uh, working to see what the need is locally with councillors. But evidently, some listeners were taking the mayor's side against the media. Uh, lots of texts coming in about Wayne Brown, both for and against. Many of you calling the media drongos. Um, and one of you saying... The way Kim Hill spoke to Wayne Brown yesterday was unnecessarily provocative. I wish I'd spoken to Wayne Brown yesterday. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Would have liked to. Yeah. The next day, Deputy Mayor Desley Simpson said this on TVNZ's breakfast show when she was asked why the mayor himself wouldn't front to the media. So, yeah, he he is he's part of the problem and the solution. (laughs) Uh, He's with he's uh, he's aware of the problem most most definitely. 
Obviously, just a Freudian slip and not really a big deal, and by this time, almost everyone was aware of the problem. Not least because Wayne Brown had doubled down on his Drongo's insult in a long call to a Herald journalist described by Stuff's Todd Nile like this on Wednesday's morning report. While uh, rain was lashing Auckland and a new round of flooding and slips and you know devastation in parts of the city was happening, the mayor had uh, spent half an hour talking to the New Zealand Herald, in which he basically focused on his dislike of the media. Uh, he repeated the phrase that's reported, you are drongos. In terms of his unavailability with the media, he said, and the quote was, I don't need to talk to anybody, I'm in. The, the mayor is creating yet another um, round of war, if you like, with the news media at the time when the news media should be the vehicle through which he does his job in this crisis as a political leader. News media were also able to demonstrate that, in fact, they had played their role in the crisis after others clocked off. Stuff reporter Kelly Dennett, for example, compiled a timeline which showed how reporters were in real time seeing agencies and their communication channels falling short. And on the Herald's daily podcast, The Front Page, last Wednesday, the Herald's deputy editor, Hamish Fletcher, gave a vivid account of that in the newsroom the night that the heavens opened, but official information sources closed up. By 3.40, we'd heard reports of people being trapped in their cars. The fire service had every available appliance they had on flooding call-outs. And bearing in mind, right now, we're still about six hours away from a state of emergency being declared. By 4pm, we were hearing people being rescued from their flood-stricken homes in the West Auckland area of Swanson and similar reports of uh, people being trapped in their cars or cars being swamped by floodwaters. State Highway 1, we had reports of that being blocked near Walkworth and Met Service had put out fresh thunderstorm warnings um, and police began putting out warnings about the weather and things really ballooned from there, Damien. Waka Kotahi has launched its own review after staff responsible for updates clocked off for the long weekend at 7.30pm while the roads were flooding and the danger was ramping up and some people were still trying to drive to Elton John. And coincidentally, Waka Kotahi is right now looking for no fewer than four senior communications advisors in different centres. Among other things, the candidates are required to have a keen sense for analysing risk. And any hopefuls listening to Morning Report last Tuesday will know that not doing the job in an emergency carries the risk of pushback from Kim Hill, like this, directed at a spokesperson for Auckland Transport. We're working 24-7 around the clock to try and restore roads uh, and public transport services. It's back good to, to hear 24-7, because, yes. you know, clocking off at 7.30 on the Friday, we'll never forget that, will we? We definitely won't forget that. Now, in the wake of the downpours and the deluge, Wayne Brown has promised a full review of all communications, including his, and the media will await the terms of reference for that with interest, and they'll be hoping they don't put any drongos in charge of it. Among those self-identifying as a media drongo this week, but only ironically to make a bit of a clown of Wayne Brown, was Stuff's boss Sinead Boucher, with this shout-out to other media drongos in Auckland covering the floods. They didn't clock off at 7.30pm. They didn't wait to be told it was an emergency. They worked all night, even when their homes were threatened and their whanau were evacuated. And as we heard last weekend here on Media Watch, even if their own premises were evacuated too. But while many in the media stepped up during the drama, some, including RNZ, 
are deemed lifeline utilities under civil defence and emergency management legislation and as such are obliged to keep broadcasting updates and information no matter what. And not all the media critics this past week have been entirely satisfied. In his weekly commentary, former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said the media coverage on the Friday night was limited to local evacuation events, smartphone videos and interviews that were light on detail. And he said we didn't get a picture of how badly the city and the region was really being affected. I waited for someone to appear, pointing to a map of Greater Auckland and saying, these areas are experiencing heavy flooding. State Highway 1 is closed here, here and here, as are these arterial routes here, here and here across the city. Cliff faces have collapsed in these suburbs. Well, in a minute we'll look at how what he wanted there could actually be achieved. But Gemin Ellis went on to say he didn't get what he wanted on Saturday morning from television either. The two main channel's weekend politics shows are not yet on air for the year because of the way they're publicly funded by New Zealand On Air for a set number of episodes. Rolling coverage was offered by both channels by Saturday afternoon, but even then, Gavin Ellis noted, media organisations were reusing social media material from citizens almost as much as the official information that from some quarters was still in short supply. Duncan Grieve, writing in the spin-off, also said that the floods had showed official communications can't respond at the required pace in a crisis, and even the major media institutions, he said, appeared too thinly staffed on an Auckland holiday weekend to interrupt scheduled programming. At the peak of the storm and maximum public interest, TVNZ1 had Clark Gayford taking a couple through their home renovation. And even on the Friday evening of a long weekend, he said, we are entitled to expect better. And in the same vein, one Media Watch listener got in touch to complain that Country Life was on air as usual on RNZ National on the Friday night, while the big city was flooding. And all this makes you think that a decently funded public media entity might be able to offer comprehensive coverage of a sudden crisis on TV, radio and online, should we ever get one. But the spin-offs Duncan Grieve reckoned the main takeaway was that this time it was the user-generated smartphone coverage which really clarified how bad the situation was in real time. While the city's mayor prevaricated over whether to declare a state of emergency, its citizens watched their phones in horror as Auckland drowned. TikTok in particular, in Duncan Greaves' words, decisively won the media coverage. And having read that, long-serving former TV3 news boss and now editor at Newsroom Mark Jennings agreed. My own sources of information have pretty much been social media as well, which I wouldn't have thought would be the case in the past. But if we look at um, where we're getting the best pictures, the fastest pictures, the actual localised knowledge that probably all of us in Auckland have been requiring, social media has been the fastest way uh, to get it. By way of contrast, Newland MP Deborah Russell said on 9 to noon on Wednesday that she'd been to the houses of several stricken constituents who didn't have smartphones or use the internet at all. And it remains to be seen if the relationships between emergency management agencies, news media and social media are fully considered in the reviews of this week's unprecedented disaster. But gaps in our response capability and capacity to keep pace with social media were identified way back in April 2019 with the publication of the National Disaster Resilience Strategy. And that also noted that a ministerial review two years earlier had identified... Emerging issues such as maintaining pace with media and social media, responding to new and complex emergencies, 
and the type of command, control and leadership required to ensure rapid, effective, inclusive and compassionate response and recovery. And those emerging issues emerged pretty starkly this past week. Dan Neely is a Senior Advisor in Emergency Preparedness at the Wellington Regional Emergency Management Office, or REMO for short, and he's been there since 2009, and he's been a key figure in adopting social media platforms like Facebook to boost its reach. We, we see social media as a, as a really important uh, platform to connect and communicate important messages um, to our public, so it, it, it allows two-way conversations to be had and, and real-time information to be disseminated. Yeah, so I can recall, you know, talks that you'd given years ago, because uh, you've been in your job for quite some time, and years ago pointing out that Facebook was quite important now and you were getting a lot of followers at Remo. Is, is social media now integrated right into your disaster planning and communications? Yeah, so mainstream media, you know, organizations like Radio New Zealand, for example, are critical lifeline partners that are um, important during an emergency response, we also use social media in a lot of ways. So in the Emergency Operations Center, for example, both emergency management and our councils are trained in public information management, and those teams actively incorporate social media into the intelligence gathering as well as um, how those messages are being conveyed to the public, right? So platforms like Facebook and Twitter and TikTok can really provide live video and audio feed that are really focused information, and that can be hugely useful to those of us in the official response and provide a perspective of what is happening really on the ground and validate what we're hearing. Does it perhaps give people unrealistic expectations of, you know, what can be achieved and communicated? Now, you know, do they think that maybe every agency should have some sort of mission control with uh, uh, digital professionals wearing headsets, you know, up 24-7, able to, to provide this sort of constant audiovisual service alongside? What, what we know and what we see is people get really hungry for information when something's going on. People increasingly expect a certain degree of 24-7 information, gosh, about, you know, everything. In my field of emergency management, we're really conscious of keeping our messaging tied to emergency management, which is really the realm of life and property safety, and it's not getting pulled into, quote-unquote, inconvenience management, which is the more along stuff like traffic delays and canceled events. That's a really interesting distinction. So emergency from inconvenience. So, for example, if there's a holiday weekend and there's uh, an accident that clogs a major highway and it's going to cause disruption, uh, people expect now to hear about that through social media platforms and through the news media via, uh, you know, a, a comms team at an agency like uh, Waka Kotahi, for example. So yeah, maybe that increases their expectation that when something approaches the status of an emergency, that there will be 24-7 coverage, you know, no matter when and where these crises hit. Emergency management, um, which, is, which is really our job to help the public make those important decisions um, when it matters, as well as, you know, kind of maybe drawing a line between inconvenience management, which is just, you know, any of us can experience frustrating things at any time. Right now there's something called the Trifecta Program, which is feeding into possible new legislation for emergency management. So all this stuff is in play. Um, the fact that what's happened in Auckland and the communication side of it is all going to be reviewed now, uh, the Auckland Mayor has said. Will the findings they come out with be of uh, intense interest to, to you and the Wellington uh, Emergency Management Office when, when they come out? We, we, we all review um, what happens across the country, and we're always looking at ways to improve the sector. We start our 
one of the country's first uh, social media accounts back in 2010, and it's a medium that made sense to us at the time. Um, you can really see the way that, that those different platforms are pitched towards different audiences. Um, will continue to evolve as we as we learn and as those platforms continue to expand. That was Dan Neely, a senior advisor in emergency preparedness at the Wellington Region Emergency Management Office, or REMO for short. Now, as we heard earlier, Gavin Ellis lamented the lack of a big picture, literally in the form of a map showing closures, inundations, relief centres, danger areas and so on. But way back in 2016... Remo commissioned research into whether citizens and their social media could actually be harvested to create something like that in a crisis. Massey University design lecturer Tristram Sparks, along with colleague at Massey Joe Bailey, led the effort to design a live crisis map which emergency management agencies, the media and citizens alike could all use to track and respond to developing disasters. Crisis mapping is quite an old idea. And uh, through um, some research and some really committed work from developers and uh, citizens on the ground after the Christchurch earthquakes, um, they started plotting uh, where the damage was occurring and where ongoing uh, response was needed and where the situation was still developing. Uh, Wellington uh, Regional Emergency uh, Management Office, um, uh, they commissioned Joe Bailey and I at uh, the College of Creative Arts to take a look at this and this is where the idea of our main uh, research came from, preparing people to use a map um, and to aggregate information before a crisis hit. Just like the uh, GeoNet application um, that uh, GNS puts out, one of the first things that most of us do when we hear feel an earthquake is reach for our smartphones, pull it out, uh, submit a felt report. Now, it happened this week. They had an earthquake uh, centred near Morrinsville, I think, on Friday. Some 11,000 people hopped on GeoNet and said, felt it. Absolutely. So, Now, that uh, report in 2016 that came out, Prepare Wellington was the title. That was the name of the, the platform you proposed, a sort of concept and design. There neat little, uh, I think, templates in there, uh, graphics showing what a user might have. So uh, a little thing you could see. So you, you spotted something. What's your location? What sort of incident have you seen? All of it geolocated. Is the idea that if enough citizens have pre-boarded or whatever the term is, they've used it, they've adapted it, they've got it on their phones, when something happens, you'll start seeing all these little data points filled in, a live map will start to exist. Well, absolutely. I mean, like, you need to see those situations emerge, especially in densely populated areas. Trust but verify is really important in any social media environment. You want to be able to um, ensure that that is actually happening. And one way to do that, of course, is multiple reports. The other a way to, to verify something, of course, is by uh, civil defence and emergency services professionals. Um, so that that verification is important. But it's also, it's not just the geolocation that's important, it's the uh, timeline. You want to know when that particular area might still uh, pose a danger to the public, pose a danger to um, uh, first responders, and also to uh, make sure that it has the resources applied to it. Um, as might be applicable. Yeah, speaking of resources, in the report, flipping through it, one thing that caught my eye was just a photograph of some looking rather antique uh, tractor. Yeah. You know, not, not a whole lot of tractors in Wellington. But the point is, you, you could be aware in advance almost of where resources that you wouldn't have thought would be that much use uh, suddenly are, are actually available. 
And that was our way of, of answering um, uh, Dan Neely and, and Lisa McLaren's sort of question when they commissioned us to do the research, is how do you make a map like this important before the crisis happens? The Hidden Tractors of Wellington was kind of a glib suggestion of actually saying, well, we don't know what we need in a crisis when it hits, but wouldn't it be great to know that there might be a tractor around the corner that you can call on should you need it and to make sure that you know it's only visible when it's needed um, but that's where the user experience design and so on would come in and and also the the trust the prepare wellington report suggested uh you could have a social media initial response team mm. a smirt where the regional emergency management office staff can publish appropriate uh, material to news media channels and monitor sources for information. You've said this could be escalated if required to a social media active response team, a SMART, which takes responsibility then for gathering in online information. Is that when a crisis gets to a certain level, you actually have dedicated social media professionals that can then fire up those channels and get the best of them. Is that the idea? Absolutely. I mean, civil defence in particular has a lot of really committed um, individuals who would volunteer for um, any uh, requirement as as needed um, in this situation. So a social media team could be a, uh, a civil defence professional or it could be a, a trusted member of the public. There is a uh, website out now called floods.nz that is... Um, there is a, an element of verification in there. But in terms of the smart and the smirt kind of relationship, you, it's that trust but verify thing again. You need to uh, know when enough reports come in from users are in a crisis situation um, where it should be elevated in some respect. It's passed on to the emergency services. Obviously, that all of this information will be available to uh, journalists and uh, citizens as well so that they would know whether they could help or whether they should just steer clear. And so a lot of this depends in the end on people and how they behave and what they use online. And things change. So, for example, there is a chart in the Prepare Wellington report. So this is 2016, I think it was published, uh, where people were asked, um, how did you find out about the 2011 quake in Christchurch? A quarter of people said they found find it via television, which I think you found surprising. Um, more than email, web, and social media combined. That would probably be very different uh, a decade on and would have been different this past week uh, in and around Auckland. Um, word of mouth accounting for 18%. Similarly, uh, when you asked what social networks do you use, uh, in terms of social media, Facebook was uh, supreme. Um, neighbourly stuff, formerly Fairfax Media Platform, the usage was at 25%. Google Plus was a platform a lot of people were using. Um, now I don't think no, anybody does. So uh, even in the, what, what, six to seven years since uh, you were doing that work, that's changed very much. So you'd have to stay on top of people's habits for a live crisis resource like this to work, wouldn't you? Yeah, and there are ways to for developers to be able to do this, um, uh, engineers of websites, to be able to scrape information off public um, resources. Um, but there's also ways that we can build relationships between those platforms so that actually we would be requiring maybe even the platform to send us those reports that might have a particular hashtag or some other identifying uh, connection. And in the end, with social media being so immediate now, uh, people are saying everything was too slow. It's because now they expect that almost entitled to uh, be notified by 
official authorities from one of the platforms that they use. Absolutely. I mean, like, uh, the central government has made huge strides recently. I'm sure that we all remember the COVID alerts. Um, They were obviously in real time, but that was in a controlled environment. Um, Real-time media has set up a cultural expectation for a certain... uh, demand to be notified. Mm. And this is even like not when there's necessarily a crisis, just when there's a a major road closure, one accident and holiday traffic's held up. Why the hell didn't I find out straight away? You know, people do expect it now, don't they? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about how social media undermines um, community cohesion. Um, but at the same, and so there's a, an element of the individual who is always the most important, and there is something that uh, larger platforms, especially of aggregated information, can actually start to offset that sense that um, that the expectation that the individual will know from central government um, before anybody else, or only specific and relevant to them, uh, will happen in a timely manner, and it's it's a, a hard. Uh, adjustment, I think, for our society and, and government. It, it needs to come together so that the information is not goes beyond entertainment or occupying your attention. It needs to be actionable. And that everyone is on the same page if they're using the same data in the end, which they all are. Absolutely. That was Massey University design lecturer Tristram Sparks, who, along with colleague Joe Bailey, led the effort to design a live crisis map in a project called Prepare Wellington. And finally this weekend on Media Watch, there was a treat for fans of TV political polls last Monday, two at once on both of the main six o'clock TV news shows. But no one was more excited than the political reporters of the outlets that paid for those polls, like NewsHub's Jenna Lynch. This poll is a tectonic shift in the political landscape. Chippy has changed the game. Decision 23 is going to be dynamite. Mm. But dynamite for whom? Well, Hayden Donnell looked at that question in Midweek Media Watch this week on Nights with Karen Hay last Wednesday. If you missed it, that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Now, TVNZ was so excited by their poll the same day and the almost identical result that One News led the bulletin with it that night, even ahead of updates on the emergency in and around Auckland. Now, while they were at it, TVNZ's pollster Kantar also asked the 1,000-strong sample about the government's plan for a new public media entity merging TVNZ and RNZ with results that were not exactly dynamite for presenter Simon Dello the next night on TVNZ One News. Public support for it is flat, according to an exclusive One News Kantar public poll. Political reporter Kushla Norman has the numbers. And those numbers turned out to be these. Do you support or oppose the merger? 28% said they were for it, 41% against, and the rest didn't know or didn't answer. And the next day on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking, who's labelled the merger as insane, repeated those TVNZ poll numbers to his audience with his own particular spin. 28% support it, 41% don't. So in other words, those who have made up their mind, the vast majority don't want it for fairly obvious reasons. So there is a 13% gap there between the yeas and the nays, but almost one in three were telling Kantar there that they didn't know or wouldn't say. So you could say it's in the balance. Yet Mike Hosking told his listeners that the didn't knows could also be counted as against the media merger. The reason 31% didn't know is no one cares. This is what I've been trying to say. But what he'd been trying to say to his listeners isn't what the survey actually found, though it was not the only effort lately to find out what people think of the idea. 
I was reminded of the Market Research Commission by the Better Public Media Trust. So next time you hear a news story and you hear a poll result, who's commissioned it is the key. Well, yes, it can be. The design of the survey and the intent of the question asked can affect the result. And so can what the pollster doesn't ask or include in a question. And this was Mike Hosking's take on that better public media market research. Join some dots. So they claimed, and this was only a week or so ago, including the don't knows, the results to the question were 44% of people support it. 29% don't support it, 26 don't. So suddenly you've got... 44% of people supporting a merger, and they're out there trumping it. They're putting out their press release. The media's taking the bait, and they're running it on the radio and putting it on the television. They go, oh, look at that, 44% support the merger. And you go, really? Really, according to Research NZ, after asking 900 people that question, waited for a national population, and with a margin of error of 3.2% in their survey. Now, that didn't get as much media coverage as Mike Hosking seemed to think there, and he just couldn't recognise that result alongside the other one. The difference between 44 and 28 is, of course, a great deal larger than 3%. One poll isn't right. Which one? But they could indeed both be right because the key difference wasn't the percentages. It was the question in the Better Public Media Research New Zealand survey, which Mike Hosking neglected to tell his ZB audience about. Research NZ asked people if they support the media merger, given that it costs the country $109 million per year, or $22 per person, if it provided a wider range of content for a wider range of people. In other words, some information for that sizable proportion, who, according to TVNZ's Kantar poll, didn't know much about the issue. 26% though still told Research NZ they didn't know in the Better Public Media survey, so that would seem to show that don't know really can't be the same as don't care or not in favour. Now one thing that most people will know from media reports of the merger plan lately is that most of the media assumes the media policy will be chopped anyway, as National Party leader Christopher Luxon predicted in this recent chat with the National Business Review. And I bet you they'll dump it. I bet you they'll dump it. And from the way TVNZ One News presenter Simon Dallow introduced the TVNZ poll this way. TVNZ Radio New Zealand merger is expected to be one of the first policies on new Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' chopping block. And it does make you wonder why they bothered asking if, like Mike Hosking reckoned, it was already on the chopping block. The media merger, which all agree appears dead in the water. The Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson, retained his role in this week's Cabinet reshuffle and he even climbed the Cabinet rankings. So we'll have to wait and see if the merger that he's backed is indeed chopped by Chippy or classed as a bread and butter item that we do end up paying for. That's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night on Nights with Karen Hay with Midweek Media Watch and back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.